Welcome to Midweek in the City. Thank you all for being here. Um, Again, we love being here with y'all on Wednesday nights because we get to ask questions that we don't always get to ask, and we get to dig into things that we don't always get to spend time on. And so thank you all for being with us. Um, So tonight we have Father John Markey from Oblate Seminary joining us. And so would y'all give him a round of applause for joining us? (laughs) So we are so excited to have you. And so... Um, and we actually have a mutual friend. Um, one of our Thursday in the City guests from last spring um, was a, her husband was a student of his over there at Oblate. And so um, the, it all, it's a small world. But uh, we'll just go ahead and jump in. I know that we normally discuss those questions, but I'm realizing how much we have to get through. But um, I would encourage you all to think about those two things this week. Um, what would you like to introduce into your faith life? And would you consider a discipleship? relationship. Is that a need that you have? Is that a gift that you have to give? Um, and if you have questions about that, I want you to, to ask us and to talk to us about that, because those are things that Pastor Chris has asked us to, to think about, and those are things that are worthwhile. And so right. um, we can talk about that more later. But first of all, Father John, thank you for joining us. This Good. is great. Good to be here. Yeah. I'm, so I have a very strange relationship to mics. My voice <laughs> either okay. overwhelms. I sound like I'm announcing a baseball game. <laughs> To the people who hear a baseball game two week, two streets over, and so a lot of people, my voice overwhelms them, and so anytime I'm at a new parish, I have to do mic checks like this, go. like how do we get the right that relationship this will, this will be a to running, my, a running running. Mic so we check, might yeah. have to, if, yeah. if at any point it gets too animated or too loud, you can raise your hand or, David, oh, you David can hear me, oh, okay, I, yeah, all David, right. No, if and David our, can... You're which good. which inning is it? That's all I want. Well, it's I'm a seventh inning. First? I'm a seventh inning preacher, but a fifth inning speaker. So okay, uh, okay. Well, yeah. fair enough. Thank you for joining us. This is so great. So last week we had a, a professor from Truett Seminary, and he talked to us about St. Patrick, partly because it was right before St. Patrick's Day, but also uh, it was a good way to open this little series that we've been doing. And so we've had kind of some of the Baptist view on this, but we've, we unpacked his life a little bit. But you are kind of an expert in, in what we're talking about tonight, so I'm excited to get into that. But first, um, so you're a professor at Oblate Seminary. Right. Oblate School of Theology. Oblate right. School of Theology. Okay, so would you tell us what you study there, what your academic work is in, um, what your work there is like? Okay. Um, and that's here in San Antonio, by the right, way, for right. those of so, you who don't. Um, let me just say this. I, I, um, so I'm, a, uh, I, I'm from San Antonio. I grew up here, and then in 1980 I went off to get a, a degree in um, watching football, at a place called Notre Dame, University of Notre Dame in Indiana, and I stayed there to get a doctorate because we couldn't win a national championship and we never did. That's how it goes. But I stayed there to get a doctorate in medieval theology, medieval thought, medieval theology, and in the middle of that, um, I realized I really wasn't interested in studying medieval thought because I wasn't very good at Latin, but also I just wasn't that interested, and so I left there and uh, became a Dominican. I actually, this is my story. I became a medieval person instead, <laughs> and then went and studied contemporary theology. So I have a doctorate in uh, systematic uh, theology and in philosophy, and um, my expertise is pretty much then in what's called foundational theology. But because I'm a Roman Catholic, you immediately put someone in a job they haven't trained for. <laughs> so um, after I got my second doctorate, they put, made me um, novice director, which for us is the first year of, for people entering into our life, the Dominican life. And that means you're in charge of the spiritual uh, preparation of men for, and, men, and at that point, men and women for uh, Dominican life. So I became an expert in Dominican spirituality. So because of that, all that's to say that um, therefore I don't have a single career. I have a con- convoluted career. But the best part of it was I ended up back here uh, 12 years ago to my home, uh, 14 years ago actually. And um, at Oblate, they wanted to start a, a PhD in spirituality. And so we have a PhD program in spirituality, and that's, I'm the director of that, and I'm the founder of, founding director of that, and 
So that's basically what I do these days. And so um, my main work these days is in spirituality, although I also have done work in uh, what Roman Catholic, mainly Roman Catholic circles in, in, in theology, and then in philosophy, I'm an expert in 19th and 20th century American thought, pragmatism. So there you have it. That would be William James and... and yes, although I, I write the opposite of William okay. James, which right. is Josiah Royce, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, and John Dewey, a communal pragmatism. Okay, yeah, okay. So Very cool. I'm a, well, we'll I'm have a, that debate later. Yeah, so you, if you want me back... <laughs> Stick around for like that. That's a, that is actually what I'm really good at. So if you really want something interesting, you want this discussion on American rationality. There you go. Our, our after party for midweek can yeah, be debates now. Yeah, the after the, party can focus the late on night. the egghead <laughs> after party. Uh, and and so um, you are a lifelong Roman Catholic, and I, I feel a little bit like you know you're a zoo exhibit here because it's a Baptist <laughs> church, and you know you're uh, you, you're you're not not because of your attire. That's not, but I mean just because you're a Catholic and you're. You're sitting here. No, no. I mean, actually, this is part of the new reality, right? Almost half of our seminarians were raised either in kind of non-traditionally religious community families or were raised um, were raised not Catholic. So a lot of our uh, white, especially white, um, because we have two kinds of major types of seminarians at Oblate in the sense that we have a lot of people from Mexico or Mexican-American uh, where Spanish is, so we have a lot of bilingual students in our sure. cohorts. Yeah. And uh, so that group is almost all raised what we call uh, 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 bi-ecclesial. In other words, they are Roman Catholic, but they're they also go to the Wednesday night church somewhere. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Which yeah. is exactly. a San Antonio thing, you know, it's yeah. very much the, the reality here is, a, is that, that most people are by church. They belong to multiple churches. Sure. Yeah. Then, but a lot of our, our, our um, uh, Anglos that come, come from the sub suburbs, where okay. I come from, yeah. uh, they tend to actually be people who've come to Catholicism and uh, from other traditions or non-traditions. Okay. So it's real interesting because it used to be when I entered the seminary, we were all just Irish. I mean, that was all, that was really what we were. We were just a bunch of ghetto Irish kids whose last name was McBrien and Donnelly. Well, and I kept, I kept this week. I kept saying Father O'Leary. Yeah, I just I kept saying. Why that was no, 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 she, said, it, she kept it, saying it's, no. It's, it's Father Markey. Yeah, no, no. And <laughs> so I'm sorry. Yeah, and that would have just been the normal thing. Everybody, I'm a family of six. I mean, somebody had to become a priest. And I was, <laughs> I had my father thought I had the wor least the worst work ethic, so it was me. <laughs> so that's how you did it in those days. It wasn't complicated. That's, that's so, is that, so you grew up Catholic? Is yeah, that how you found Catholic, the Catholic and Church? Then, okay. Like I say, grew up and then yeah, uh, and and didn't think I was going to be a priest. To be honest, I mean that was one of the interesting things. Mm -hmm. Most people presume you've all. I always wanted to be a priest. Once I was a little boy, I dreamed of being a priest. Sure, yeah, it, yeah. I mean I. I dreamed of being a professional basketball player, but God didn't see it that way. I mean, <laughs> nature conspired against me, so I ended up having to find alternatives to that. And I went to Notre Dame, actually, to study philosophy. I wanted to be a professor. I mean, I really did want to be an academic. But, um, yeah, as I got doing that yeah. at some point in the middle of my... So this is... Our faith journey always intersects with this, right? Sure. When we talk about these things... My own life was I was writing a dissertation on Thomas Aquinas, who's a great medieval theologian, and he belonged to something called the Order of Preachers, the Order of Preachers. And I thought the name was fantastic. And so I asked my director, who I presumed was a Jesuit priest, and in other words, there's multiple religious orders, one of them was the Jesuits, and I thought he was a Jesuit priest. I said, you know, I'm really interested in this idea of being a preacher, of the Order of Preachers. I said, do any of them still exist anywhere in the world? or they? Because a lot of medieval religious orders kind of went out of existence. And he's like, I'm a Dominican. I say, you are? I thought you were a Jesuit. He says, no, I'm not a Jesuit, I'm a Dominican. And I'm like, how do you become a Dominican? And so my journey began actually, as I say, in some ways, not wanting to study the Middle Ages anymore, but 
in kind of wanting to take on that identity because I found what he was called to in his own story really fascinating. And then the person that animated him was St. Dominic. Okay. How cool. And so that's, that's fascinating because it, it is a weaving together of these circumstances with the, the call of God and the activity of God in your life to, to prompt you and draw you into a life of service in the church. And it is, that's a, that's a tender story, actually. Uh, yeah, well, that, you know, what really animated me, if you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, you have never heard a good homily unless I happen to, you know, it's like the expectations are so remarkably low. I could conceivably be the best preacher in this diocese and you wouldn't all let me in your pulpit. That's how low the expectations are. So, I mean, you know, like, so when I was raised in the Catholic church, I honestly thought that that would be like, if there was only one person who could preach, right? What for, if one person preaches, I will not leave this community, right? It's kind of a, my God response to Abraham, or Moses. Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, God responds to Abraham. You know, I'm, give me one holy person, right? And, and so I, I really thought, wouldn't that be great if we had some people who were interested in preaching in the Catholic Church? That was really my initial I felt that call, like I want to go preach the gospel in Catholicism because obviously no one ever took, did. <laughs> I mean, I have no memory of a single homily in my whole wow. childhood. Wow. And it was really, it really is, it's still that way. I mean, people will come out and say, that was the best homily I've ever heard. And it's like, well, I, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, you're a Catholic. <laughs> you're probably a lifelong Catholic. <laughs> you know, it's like not hard to be the best at... <laughs> You know, a very low bar. So, but it was like what excited me. And then I got interested in, and I'd always kind of been interested in social justice. I'd, I'd actually been interested in one point of joining a Catholic worker house, which is where I still work, by the way. I still am part of mm. this movement of working with the homeless and, and at the margins of society. But this is like Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day, kind of the founder, our founders. That was the other person I was conceivably, yeah. if you were going to talk about, was. But oh, I, it was, the life was way too hard. <laughs> this is for people, you know, to yeah. be in the trenches with the poor every day is a huge challenge, mm -hmm. emotionally, psychologically. And, and so, um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I felt like I, I wanted to serve, but I didn't know that my gift was really social work, yeah. you know, being right mm -hmm. in there. Right. And right. so I got this idea. I still want to be an academic, but I thought maybe a better use of all this degree would be to preach. Okay. Oh, cool. Like being able to articulate the word of God to people like my own family or my own parents or the kids yeah. I grew up with, et cetera. Yeah. How cool. so, so the Dominican Order of Preachers, that's a, just a group that studies preaching. Is that how you would describe well, it? Well, what happened is, is St. Dominic was a priest in the Middle Ages who was born in 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 uh, 1170 in northern uh, Spain, in Castile. And he was a priest, and he was part of a bishop's, uh, uh, the bishop, the house of a bishop was called a close, and it was, the bishops lived themselves like monks. Well, the bishops didn't, let's be honest. But <laughs> the priests lived like monks, the bishop lived like kings, but, you know, let's, let's be honest about this. But the, but the priests live fairly normal, uh, fairly uh, austere lives. They live like monks. And they, they prayed, and they, but their, their work was to do this, say, mass daily, right? That was what they did. And so um, Dominic had never been out of this small world he'd entered into. And then in, the, in 1203, his bishop goes, walks to Denmark, walked to Denmark wow. from modern day, modern day, like, I don't know if any of you know Spain, but like just north of Madrid. So he walked to Denmark to deliver to a marriage proposal, and Dominic went with him as it was only 21. And when he went through the southern part of France and, and then northern France and up through Germany, he realized that the church had abandoned people, that it was lived all up on a hill in monasteries and that and, and, and in a thousand in the hundred years time since his his own parents' birth, 
the, the, the world had changed completely. And so within 100 years, 150 years, between the time, turn of the millennium and his birth, it went from 92% of people lived in the country and 8% in little towns and villages to 66% lived in cities and 40% lived out in the country. And so there were these huge cities, Paris, Toulouse, uh, modern, moder all these modern day great cities, Florence, et cetera, but there was no church. And so most of these people had been abandoned in a certain sense, not intentionally, but there was really nobody there. And so the heresies uh, were rife, right? There were all these crazy her heretical movements that largely were very negative and taught people that they were basically damned. And therefore, if you're damned, well, have another beer, right? I mean, you know, what the heck? I mean, if there's nothing you can really do about it, I mean, you know, I guess it's like, well, I might as well have another beer and, you, you know. You heard, so, it, you heard it here, folks. Yeah, if you're damned anyway. So anyway, this kind of despair. And so when he, on his way back, he walked across Europe, by the way, 13 times. I mean, very interesting oh, world, right? Where there was no other way to get around. So when he came back, he asked his bishop if he could stay for one year with a couple of the other guys in this small town in southern France where he got to know some people and preach the gospel to them because he said he feared he, he would cry every night on this trip. He cried. He said, what will become of sinners? What will become? Nobody's preaching the good news to them. These people feel lost. Wow. So he asked his bishop on the way home if he could stay one year, and the bishop said, yes, you can stay one. He was slated to be the next bishop. So he oh, wow. told him, yes, you can stay one year, but then you have to come home. Dominic was slated to be slated the next to be bishop. Next bishop. So asked Dominic his... asked, I want to just stay here. So they stayed in this small town called Fanjou, which is still there and um, still about the same as it was in the Middle Ages. And he lived in a barn with these brothers of his and they and different places around town. They whoever gave him food or invited him in. And they preached the gospel. They preached good news. They mainly Matthew's gospel. They they only had two written copies of they each had he had a he could read math say he had a copy of St. Matthew's and Paul's book to the uh, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. So that's all he actually Matthew and Romans. He had Matthew and Romans. So that's what he started doing, and then he went back to the bishop, and finally in 2012-07, the bishop released him and 15 brothers to go and be preachers of the gospel in southern France. He released them from their vows that they rather, could go. Rather than taking the bishopric, he went wow. and just devoted his life mm -hmm. to He devoted the rest of his life to then forming and training brothers to go preach the gospel. And his, his great line was, preach grace. Mm. He said, preach grace, and he said, the way we'll show that is by living poverty, that we'll completely trust ourselves to the providential care of God such that we'll have no money, we'll live as Jesus lived, no pocket change, no walking stick, nothing but just uh, living with the hospitality of whoever takes us in and, uh, and preaching the gospel. So mm. that was the uh, initial inspiration was he thought that the Vita Apostolica, see before then, to be a monk was to what was called the Vita it was to live the apostolic life, mm -hmm. Acts 2, 42 through 44, where it says, live together, share all things in common, pray together daily, etc." So that's what they thought being the church was really meant to be, right, is to have this Vita Apostolica. And Dominic, when he's challenged about this by his bishop, he says, well, don't you remember in Matthew 15 and other many other places, Jesus also sends the apostles out to preach good news two by two. Uh, and he said, so that's all I'm asking is not to change the apostolic life. In other words, monastic life. I'm just asking mm -hmm. that some of us be sent out yeah. oh. to preach. Amazing. So that's how it started. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, this is absolutely fascinating. And every time somebody talks about one of these folks, like last, the two weeks ago when we started the first in this series, we talked about St. Patrick. And this, and I'd heard a little bit about him, but Dominic has been completely off of my, you know, understanding, and 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 this is just so deeply, deeply yeah. moving and fascinating. That yeah. now, how did he? Did he? How did he give order to these 
this order? I mean, did, did he have schools that he would train these preachers, or did he just say, come and preach, or watch me, or how did he train these folks? Well, what's interesting about Dominic, so Dominic, the reason you've never heard of Dominic is there was another priest who was born, and the, there was another, not priest, he was a deacon, and there was a, a, another famous person born the same year as St. Dominic, born in a little town in Italy. It was Francis. St. Francis. And, but Francis, Francis's movement was to be poor with the poor. They're not even preaching, right? Oh, We're not okay, even going to talk with these people. We're going to go out and be, the monastery needs to move into the streets. Okay. We're okay. going to go and just be with these people, pray with them, uh, live their lives. And so he had the exact same experience, right, that these people have been abandoned. And therefore, the church needs to get there right alongside them and not, not try to make them Catholics or Christians. They didn't know they were Catholics. They just thought they were Christians <laughs> at this point. Uh, yeah. But they, yeah. they were, um, but so his vision was just to be with the people. And Dominic's vision was to be with the people, but also to preach. And so they both end up in Rome in 1215 together. And the Pope's oh. very worried about Francis because he thinks he's a nut. <laughs> Let's just be honest. And he was. He was completely nuts. Let me just say this. There's some sort of like friction yeah. between There's the There's a little friction and a little bit of... Ja like they, we helped them and they haven't really returned the favor. But let me just say this, that Francis was kind of a crazy person who really just wanted to be poor and everything. And the Pope was worried like, well, you know, you can't really carry this off if you don't have any organization at all. And Dominic, on the other hand, was a master organizer. Okay, so Francis is sort of like a hippie. Oh, yeah, really okay. much a hippie. And right. also very much like an, his, his, it was very much coming out of his own, his stories. You know, Dominic was a, a, sent to the live a, as a priest when he was four or five. Oh, my wow. gosh. Uh, Francis had been rebelling against his father and was drunk and as himself, as he says, oh, okay. a womanizer in Rome and all kinds of not happy. It's very Augustinian, yeah, I think. Yeah, well, he, and he leaves. <laughs> he, he goes back, right, to his father's house, who's just really angry at him and everything, and he has this other story of conversion where he sees Christ actually appears to him and tells him, build my church, rebuild my church. And so Francis, who's not very smart, let me just say, but he thinks <laughs> that what, what, what God wants him to do is go rebuild a run-down church on the edge of town. So he literally goes out there and starts rebuilding the church, right? And all these people come and start, these men start coming to help him rebuild this little church. And then eventually they realize, is, oh, the, that they've been invited to rebuild the church, not this church in Assisi, <laughs> but the, 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 the church. Yeah. And so that they realize their mission's broader than just hanging out and moving rocks and so instead and so they what happens in Rome is that the Pope who was actually a very good Pope I mean there are good Popes let me just say this that there it's not all evil horrible people although there are plenty of those so I just want to say it's not like all these but some of them are pretty smart and this one Innocent the third very bright guy he has this idea he's like you know what this is what the church needs he needs both of these visions and, but he says, you, St. Francis, you go with him because he has organizational skills you just completely lack. Okay. And so he sets it up as a brotherhood. But, but the first thing Dominic does and Francis is there are women's communities all over Europe. Women, remember, as you get this growth in population, you get women who aren't able to marry. And so since they're not allowed to marry, they have to go somewhere, so these uh, monasteries are set up of nuns all over Europe, which are second daughters, women who don't have any dowries, etc. So what do we do with all these women? Yeah. And, right. <laughs> well, Francis, Dominic, Dominic gets the idea, right, that they're part of this. Oh, okay. Right? Dominic's idea is, they, yeah, they may stay home. They may be the ones in the monastery, but who, somebody, for the preacher to go out, they have to have a place to come back to where they're sent from. And who's praying for them? Who's praying mm -hmm. for the preacher? In other words, wow. the prayer has to go on. So the women are the first members of the Dominican order. 
he takes these houses that are just kind of randomly scattered around and he consecrates them. Uh, they, they, they're consecrated to praying for the preaching. The whole, mm-hmm. And they're called, the name of the convents are called the Holy Preaching. The holy, they the holy preaching? They themselves are the holy preaching, right? Because okay. of the, their lives are the first kind of preaching. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because of their willingness to, to live in common, share all, Acts 2, 42 through 44. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the men go, of course the men travel, but the point is that the men are supposed to be utterly itinerant, and, 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 but what they realize very quickly is education. Okay. That if we're going to really train, law, you know, really articulate the gospel, we have to understand it ourselves. We have to be able to, we have to, be able to know it ourselves and know the, the heart of it, right? Know what it's about. And so this is the, really the beginning of this kind of flooding of these mendicants who were not well-liked and everything because they weren't very orderly and everything. There were a lot of young men that flood into these big cities like Cologne, Paris, Bologna, Oxford, and so the big universities, these these universities, which aren't that big until the beginning of the Dominicans, get filled up with students who are there to learn. Okay, so that's gospel. fascinating. So it's the Dominican movement that really began to bolster the growth in the universities. Right, and then eventually they to take train o- these preachers. Right, it's all about training preachers. As a matter of fact, see, you're taught there. There's a it's it's complicated to get into, but See, they don't think they're going to learn theology. They think they're going to learn scripture because you're taught what's called the hours, hmm. the, the hours at different times of the day. And they take it from what's called the sentences. In other words, there's a textbook where Peter Lombard is a 10th century, 11th century person who puts together a collection of all the texts of scripture from the Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Wow. And he organizes it in five books. And he says, okay, this one's about God and creation. This one's about the Trinity. This one's about Jesus Christ. This one's about the church and the sacraments. And this one's about human beings, our relationship to and, and our So end. it's systematic theology. It's systematic theology, but completely using texts of Scripture wow. and, mm-hmm. and commentaries on those texts from the church fathers. Okay. So what you go to learn is you go to learn the, the Scripture. And that's the new thing, right, is this, is this may sound shocking, but until this time, almost no one would have known Scripture from beginning to end. Hmm. Hmm. And especially the idea that they would have it, not only it memorized, but the uh, commentaries by the church fathers, um, Augustine, Chrysostom, all these, there's a huge number of them. And one of the interesting things about Dominicans as they go forward, for instance, St. Thomas Aquinas, the guy I studied, most people think of him as a systematic theologian, mm-hmm. but he wrote 18 commentaries on scripture. Mm-hmm. So in his lifetime, he mainly thought of himself as a commentator okay. on scripture. Okay. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, Thomas Aquinas, of all the quotes, uh, he quotes Romans 8 more than he does anyone else in the systematic, in his systematic theology mm-hmm. called the Summa Theologia. He quotes uh, he quotes uh, Paul more than he quotes Aristotle, than he quotes Augustine, mm-hmm. than he quotes anything else in, the, mm-hmm. in his whole Summa. So wow. these guys really thought they were trying to translate. And remember, they thought there were five Gospels, right, in the Middle Ages. They presumed there were the four, the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. John was a unique Gospel, and Paul was the, fourth, was the fifth Gospel. So Paul, Paul himself, they, just, they would just put all of the epistles underneath uh, that. That were considered a gospel. A gospel. Okay. So huh. um, the Dominicans, their specialty was the um, was Matthew and Paul, right? But right. And, and for instance, the Franciscans focused specifically on Luke and John because they're the people who invented Christmas. So, for instance, you know, Christmas wasn't, most people don't know this, right? But Christmas was hardly celebrated in the West until the 13th century. The idea of, because the incarnation, right, that they wanted to put at the forefront of the liturgical calendar, not the Paschal mystery, even though that was still centered. So not not Easter. Not Easter alone. 
but they, they wanted the only way you could understand Easter is through the power of the incarnation mm -hmm. itself. And so Which is the, what Christmas is. Christmas yeah. is the birth of Christ. And so there's this whole liturgical transformation and theological transformation to focus as much on the birth of Christ as the death of Christ. Yeah. And it's amazing. Now, the, the, that was Franciscan? Really out of Franciscan. Like the idea of the crash, this... So the way they taught it was they created what we call the crash scenes, right? The, the nativity scenes. Nativity yeah. scenes. The idea of the nativity as an event that you would have in your home. So a lot of places had little altars in their homes. Everybody would have in the Middle Ages, and even in my childhood, everybody had little altars. But in, in what was really new was most of in the late Middle Ages, everybody would have had a nativity scene. Little handmade versions of that was kind things. of the new uh, emphasis, right? Yeah. Because they wanted to talk about a God of in, in Philippians, right? A God who be, emptied himself and became mm -hmm. human. Yeah, yeah. So that the yeah. goal to think about grace and providence. Wow, that is cool. Okay, there's a lot to unpack. I'm sorry, no, no, no. I didn't, no, mean, no. That's, I didn't that's, mean to go on, but no. that's, absolutely fascinating. That's a long answer to a short question. No, no. that's great. That yeah, was, that's that's awesome. Okay, so. So in the way we practice today, whether we're Baptist or Catholic, the way we function in our faith life today, what things did we get from Dominic that maybe we would have missed otherwise? Or what things did he give us? I mean, you just unpacked a lot of those just things. Just worldwide Christians in general. Yeah, yeah well, really. Maybe, there really are, I would say, three things that come out of the Dominican tradition. That Clearly not the nativity. No. <laughs> They get, no. that one. they get that Franciscans one. They get that one. One. Yeah. Franciscans won. Fine. But I would say this. One of the interesting things is you get the idea. You see, you get two things really theologically from, a, from the, the centrality of the word. Okay. Mm. So the oh. idea that even the sacraments are the words made flesh, right? Even okay. the sacraments themselves are a proclaim. Mm -hmm. uh, the word itself is what is given the community of all believers, right? Hmm. It's given to everyone. And, and everyone... And in Catholic theology, what you're talking about, sacraments, there's seven of them. There's right? seven sacraments, but that, that's set, that's kind of set in the Middle Ages. But before okay. then, by what they mean mainly is the Eucharist, right? They're talking mm -hmm. about the Eucharistic Act is itself a first and foremost... It's a word. Which is what we would call communion or the Lord's yeah. Supper. Yeah, the Lord's yeah. Supper, right. Okay, yeah, yeah. So the, cent hmm. the recovery of the centrality of the word as the fundamental act by which God creates the world and redeems it. Because hmm. this they take from John 1 through 18, that, you know, God sends the word. Okay. So the centrality of the word, the, cent the second thing is really the focus on that in the Paschal mystery is not just the death and resurrection of Jesus, but the death, resurrection, and sending of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in this sense, the idea that the church itself is somehow an expression of the Holy Spirit uh, and, the, and the mission of the third person of the Trinity, not really the second person of the Trinity. I mean, in other words, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus isn't, an organ, isn't teaching at the University of Jerusalem and decides, hey, I need to organize and set up something. So, okay, I'm going to have bishops and priests and deacons and lectors. And no, that the church is really the fruit of the resurrection and Pentecost. Yeah. So that's the other thing. That's cool. Uh, and then thirdly. If he, if he had taught at the University of Jerusalem, he certainly would have gotten tenure. No, well, no, I think he'd have been executed. I think he would have been denied tenure okay. and You're executed right. because the You're whole point right. about yeah. Jesus is that what he was saying was unacceptable. Yeah. So yeah. even granted, I, I think granted. he did not have gotten tenure. Jesus is denied tenure. Okay. Denied tenure <laughs> and publicly executed. Yeah. I mean, and publicly executed, yeah. Okay. The other thing really is the, the connection in the, in the Christian tradition, not just the Catholic tradition, but certainly in the Catholic tradition between it is the connection between culture and, in that sense, philosophy, theology, and mysticism, which is for the, the medieval theological tradition, you couldn't talk about God without, in some way or another, from all, from the, all three of those sources. In other words, secular sources proclaim the glory of God. Oh, mm -hmm. wow. Yeah. Uh, Mysticism proclaims to us the mystery of God, 
and theology helps us to bridge that mm. reality. That's so cool. all those spheres. So the three have to be interrelated if you're really going to preach the gospel. Wow. You have mm. to be rooted. You have to be able to talk to the non-Christian, the non-believer. You have to be able to talk to the, and they, this is the, our tradition, you, you're, you have to be able to go out and talk with people who are having mystical visions, right? Or they're having all these women, Meister, there's all mm -hmm. these Dominican theologians that are right in spirituality. The most famous are like Catherine of Siena and, 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 and Meister Eckhart and Henry of Suso. And so a lot of actually the people that influence Luther are Dominicans, wow. uh, Dominican theologians of the fifth, 14th and 15th century. So the idea that you have to be able to preach to people who are having spiritual experiences but that don't have the ability to read and write. And so you mm -hmm. have to be able to talk to the ordinary faithful, the non-believer, the ordinary faithful who experience God mainly through their interior life and through the shared life of family life. And sure. finally, you have to be able to talk to God, to people to reasonably think about what are the what are what are the ways Christians are to live out what are the habits and practices mm -hmm. that make Christians live out their and develop their sanctification or mm -hmm. cooperate with God in sanctification in this life. Well, it's so interesting to me that uh, as a as an order of preachers, <clears throat> uh, the Dominicans and, and Dominic himself descends from Dominic, he, he says, we are going to preach, but it is, it is not come and hear. It is we are going to go and preach, and we are going to speak to, it, it's going to be wall to wall. We're, we're going to go into every crevice of humanity, wherever we find people, wherever humanity exists in whatever sphere and we're going to learn how to communicate to them. Well, and as a matter of fact, by the time Thomas Aquinas is born, one of the reasons uh, Aquinas becomes so important in Dominican theology is he joins the Dominicans in Naples in 1249. Mm -hmm. By 1249, a group of Dominicans had already been sent to Egypt and to modern-day Persia, um, modern-day Iran, Persia, wow. to learn how to speak Greek. Okay. Remember, That's Greek amazing. had been lost in the Western world. Mm -hmm. And so they couldn't read the Bible in the original language, although huh. they had texts. They discovered texts in the monasteries, but they couldn't read Greek. And they couldn't also, so that's when they discover Aristotle, they discover all these philosophers. Oh, but wow. so uh, Francis himself goes to Egypt to, to preach to Islam. <laughs> and the Dominicans have people all the way as far north by 1230 as, as modern-day Minsk. And 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 wow. Uh, so, and and all the way as far uh, in the 14th century, Dominicans are end up in India, wow. and and far south in the African Peninsula is modern day Ethiopia, and hmm. even maybe sub-Saharan parts of Africa. We this is so know. interesting because do y'all take these things for granted sometimes? Like we just always knew this. I don't know. Like yeah. Christians just had this figured out, but we yeah. didn't, right? And they did. Oh no, I mean, the, but this. the idea it's too so cool. that you would go out to. And you, you would go out to, yeah, as you say, it's the point is, is that the gospel goes to everyone. It's to mm. be preached, mm. and it's preached differently to different people. Right. So it's, the non-believer or the, the lost person who doesn't have They're going to hear differently, mm. and, and so... Yeah. yeah, so you have to change the way even how you talk to them. Wow. And it's your responsibility... As the church, change how you talk to them, not to change how they listen. Yes, yeah. yes. That's so cool. it's wow. a change in, in the notion of learning languages. So Amazing. you begin all this preaching in the 14th century in the local dialects, which remember there are hundreds of local dialects in Europe. And yeah. most preaching had taken place, if there was any at all, it took place in Latin. Mm -hmm. And uh, it took place, but then you get this idea that we're going to go talk to people in their own language and with their own stories, maybe their own mm -hmm. Unique traditions. I yeah. mean, so that Christianity is uh, Thomas uh, John Jonathan Toller is a great writer. He says, he says Christianity has a thousand faces. He said each. This is going to be slightly uh, shocking to you all. Each, like Mary's, a woman, often concerned for her children, in labor, even. God is humble and therefore 
is not jealous of the many faces. Mm. In other words, oh, so... Man. Uh, That's beautiful. He should say Christ, right? <laughs> but, I mean, already you have a lot of Marian because a lot, one of the reasons that Marian devotion grows so much in the Middle Ages is remember that most of the Germanic gods were females. Mm. And so for them, the idea of uh, divine father oh. is a bit forbidding. That's and so an idea... That's fascinating. It's not an... It's, 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 it's not just because they all love Mary, I mean, or something, or they were crazy people who didn't read the gospel, but it was also, it was in some ways a way to reach out to people whose natural tendencies were to think of God in maternal rather was, than was to move form. toward the feminine. Huh. And, yeah. The feminine, yeah. right. And they didn't really know. know a lot of contemporary scholarly research into the third person of the Trinity, and so they right. just kind of started right. talking about Mary, you know, and they... <laughs> Exactly. Uh, but in other words, but that this is the interesting idea, right? Is that mm. there's a fascinating that God could have a thousand faces, and wow. He's not jealous of that. He doesn't need it all to be mm. orthodox, right? Right? Dogma. Right? Right? Huh? So unbelievable. Baptists are less familiar with monasticism. All the, we think of like Sister Act, or like you yeah. know, we don't necessarily have Sister Act. Uh, that's what I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, we well, don't we don't have that's these. Our, that's our collective wisdom, right so, there. Okay, fine. I think of Sister Act. But, so Baptists aren't as um, uh, equipped with knowledge about how these communities work and these things. So you were saying they were modeling um, the, the church in Acts, right? That's what right. monasticism was meant right. to do. The okay. Monasticism believed that, see, as, as the church, as, as Western civilization collapsed and, and the Roman Empire collapsed, you had more and more... Um, people who just spontaneously left the cities. Mm -hmm. They just got up and left. And they were living out in the desert. And the bishops at that time, Augustine being one of them, Ambrose, his, his kind of, his great inspiration and mentor himself saw the problem in this, that, that a, a merely individual Christians yeah. not gathered in community would be lost, mm. he felt. So he started gathering them together in these what were called cenobitic communities. Very, But the idea was they could still seek their own holiness, and, 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 but they were to do it together so that they would... And the vision was they should live like the earliest apostles lived, share all things in common, pray together mm. daily, uh, give to each as any has need. So radical hospitality... Constant prayer, poverty, and work, yeah. and they should, and they, and that was thought to be an evangelistic right. It was called the evangelical life. Mm. That's why it was called religious life until Vatican II was called the evangelical life, because it was thought that by living this kind of radical way, you showed people or you evangelized people. So the mm. monastic communities, but the problem with the monastic communities is they take a vow of poverty but also a vow of stability. In other words, they'll never leave the monastery. But the problem with that became when the population shifted, all of a sudden the population in Rome shifted all out into the country where all these monasteries were because of this massive population shift. Mm -hmm. But when it shifted again, they're all stuck in the country, but all the people are living in, in, the, in the cities and there's no, there's no church there really. There's no mm -hmm. way to go out of the walls and so what the Dominicans and the Franciscans and the Carmelites, these other movements say is, no, the, the, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, and they take mm. this, and so they go together. And so my community, for instance, you live in a community. You live two or three, and uh, you pray. You still say the office every day, the mm. prayers, the psalms. You, you, uh, we don't necessarily say mass in our house because there's only two of us. We just go to mass <laughs> with everybody else at Oblate, but we still practice, you know, we eat together, we share our lives as much as we can. Uh, there's a group of three of us who live here, and so the religious life is seen to be uh, based on Acts of the Apostles, mm -hmm. and kind of based on uh, 1 Corinthians 12, the notion of the sharing of the charism. So that's why there are different kinds of communities. Mm -hmm. There are different kinds of charisms. So okay. that wow. vision, that kind of apostolic church has stayed the central focus of monastic life from the Middle Ages to, to, to now. Day. Okay, that's amazing yeah. to have that long And it would even be the way the sisters and everything look of themselves, you know, that they, even though they might mainly be running hospitals or schools or something, 
they understood themselves as living the apostolic life. It's even mm -hmm. called the apostolic life. They're mm -hmm. doing the ap ap apostolate is what it was called. Mm -hmm. yeah. The hospital apostolate, the, the teaching apostolate. Yeah. The, you know, so that there was this idea that, that what, the way they lived out their apostolic calling was through service to the poor or to the sick yeah. or to children yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Wow. That's so, I don't know. That's so, I spent some time with some Benedictine sisters yeah. once, and I was just so intrigued by that whole life. But really, it's just so, they're doing what Christians are called to do. <laughs> they're going Indeed. into the world and they're serving. That's you right. Know? But That's right. they're a lot more focused than I think. I would take for granted, yeah. Well, and I would say that in the Roman church and in general, the, the new monasticism movements, there's a lot of new movements in Christianity now that are building on that, right? And so yeah. you have a lot of, uh, like our spirituality program at, at Oblate, over half the people are evangelicals. Mm. They're not, we have, most of our Roman Catholic students are sisters coming to us from Africa and Southeast Asia who need to get doctorates to teach spirituality because women don't have doctorates where they come from. And so to get doctorates mm -hmm. so that they can teach at the That's seminaries. Amazing. So we have one who just became the professor of spirituality at a Kenyan seminary that wow. she's the only woman on the faculty. She's the only, she, she's one of only three or four women with a PhD in theology in the country. So she's, uh, it's a pretty interesting idea, right? So half of our people would mm -hmm. be Roman Catholic nuns or priests who are members of religious communities, but almost all the rest of our our students getting PhDs are lay people are mm. are not Catholic. I mean, they're coming out of other. Some are. There, we have two lay Catholic women mm. uh, that are Catholic, but lay women. One was a nurse. One was a social worker, and then we have. But a lot of the people coming are actually evangelicals, mm. because. Wow. Mm. Is in the evangelical traditions, as you know, there's a lot of spiritual formation, mm -hmm. but not always a lot of ideas about what that means. Yeah. Like right, what is right, spirituality exactly. and what are the resources we yeah. could use. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, amazing. Yeah. Um, in the interest of time, yeah, we're gonna know, we're, we're gonna <laughs> uh, we have. Uh, well, no, we no. gave you a lot of questions. <laughs> you gotta get. He just cut right to the chase. Said, you, you gotta know, stop. You me. mean stop? Um, <laughs> no. What I was going to say is, first of all. Uh, if you would like to type a question into Slido, go to slido.com and type your question and uh, type in MWITC, although you can also ask questions from the floor. But um, let, me, let me close out here by, uh, why don't you close us out here with a, one of these yeah. remaining questions? Um, so we've been studying basically the idea of how to be more ecumenical <laughs> a lot this semester, and that's kind of been the running theme um, our church did an Ash Wednesday service for the first time. We're kind I, of, I heard that. I yeah. actually know. Yeah. We, we, okay. it's a, it was known on the hill. It was known. It was oh, that's known. Hilarious. We uh, actually, this is, I, I would actually say more about this, but we have someone working on a project on popular devotions and spirituality, oh, cool. and she's keeping track of how many non-Catholic churches are now doing Ash wow. Wednesday how funny. services. Okay, well, we, it was our we, first attempt, so have some we, we, yeah. trip, <laughs> we tripped some cosmic wire somewhere yeah, really. uh, in doing this. But so, so that's kind of been part of the journey that we've been on. So for you, um, what do you see as the, the value in ecumenical work? How can we lean in towards ecumenical work? Um, yeah, what, what do we get when we do that? Well, the biggest thing that we get is, is we see that in, in, a, in a society that's increasingly going to be spiritual but not religious, mm -hmm. um, we think of denominationalism as salvation. Like, I'm a part of, I'm, I was mm -hmm. raised that way. Yeah. Catholics are saved by being Catholics. Who knew? But, I mean, I didn't know. I mean, <laughs> that's I familiar to Baptists. Right, and that... We just presumed everybody belonged to a church, and if they didn't, you know, God would probably still have mercy on them because, well, they, who, you know, they, but, you know, in other words, Catholics don't have a lot of boundaries at one level. But the point was, but what was interesting to me is that in engaging Protestants who took seriously preaching for the first mm -hmm. time, so what I, I spent my first year in religious life, the first year of my novitiate, was in an African-American church that was a shared community of uh, the Catholic church met in a 
so there were African-American Catholics in Columbia, South Carolina that shared a church with three other communities. Mm -hmm. And it was in sitting through three homilies a Sunday, all of which were better than any single homily <laughs> I ever heard in my lifetime in Roman Catholic institutions convinced me that maybe I needed to look somewhere besides Roman Catholicism if I was going to study the word. Wow. And that's how I ended up doing my doctorate out at Berkeley was precisely because I, I wanted to be at an ecumenical institution yeah. where there were some other voices and up opportunities to learn how to preach the gospel wow. other than the one that was my tradition. Yeah. So that's the one thing. Secondly, yeah. If we're going to live in this society, and, and, and that one of the, as Vatican II says and the Pope, Pope Francis says again and again, the major reason for the unbelief among young people today is the failed belief and the, and the of believers. Mm. In other words, the failed belief of believers. believers. In other words, it's people who proclaim, who say they're Christians, but act like uh, words I will not say here. <laughs> That is the main, and he says, what people are looking for are authenticity. Mm. And where will they find that? Mm. You know, and that's the question, right? Where, where will someone authenticate the words they're preaching with their life? Mm. In other words, I uh, spent a lot of my life working on housing issues and, and on homelessness and stuff. And just, you know, we just, um, I'm working on a housing project now that we spent seven years looking for a piece of property. We have 20 acres now on the southeast side of town, 20 acres cool. looking for a piece of property, even though we had $2 million up front to buy land, but where we could get the local residents to agree to let us build not a homeless shelter, but permanent supportive housing. In other words, housing for the homeless. Mm. Not, not temporary housing, not a shelter. Yeah, yeah. Permanent supportive housing, tiny homes where they could live their lives, and we would do the wraparound services. But lots and lots of communities filled with Christians told, me, told us not in my backyard. Yeah. I'm all for justice, but not here. Not, yeah. if it, not if it approaches or hurts my housing values. Yeah. And so housing values all of a sudden trump all other aspects of the New Testament. Mm. I don't remember this part. I don't remember Jesus <laughs> on the Sermon on the Mount talking, giving real estate tips. I don't remember him talking about the exceptions that are specific to rental properties, but nevertheless, most Christians seem to just presume that's as much a value as, 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 as anything written in the text of the scriptures. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so therefore, how are we going to authenticate our preaching? Well, the Catholic Church can't bear that burden, neither can the Baptist Church, neither can any denomination. Yeah. I mean, if mm -hmm. we're gonna really speak a word, an authentic word about if we're, we're going to end up, we're ending up a lot where Dominic found the church no. in the 13th century, which is mm. a hopeless people, optimistic but hopeless. Mm. And I think a lot of the, the mm. things you see about consumerism in this culture is because people have given up hope that there's something more to life than what I own. Wow. And so I've got to get it mm. while I can because there isn't much more than the house I have, the job I have, the car I drive the mm -hmm. place my kids go to school, that all my identities wrapped up in this world and, and its accomplishments. And, and, and if we're gonna say to people, no, there's some greater call and there's some future identity that's more real mm -hmm. than, than your car, then I have to be able to be willing to put my own self out there and live that and mm -hmm. proclaim it first with my life. That's good. And I think that's the challenge of, and that's not just a, Catholic challenge. That's a challenge to Christians. Yeah. And that's, man. If and the, it's in the first yeah. world. Everybody wants yeah. to talk about liberating the third world. If you go yeah, to the third good. world, the first thing they tell you is fix your own house. Yeah. They go back and tell you, fix your own house first. Yeah. Why don't you go back and talk to the oppressors? We, we're doing yeah. fine here. We, we got political oppression or an economic oppression, but it's not our, it's, it, we're, we can face that. Yeah. But what we need is cooperation and a life of solidarity, of purpose and brotherhood and sisterhood across international boundaries so that we're not merely a market that your goods go to, but we're brothers mm -hmm. and sisters who are serving the Lord together. And I mean, that's what they tell us. Mm -hmm. They don't 
They don't want us to come immerse, send a mission trip where we come and build houses. They can build houses. Mm. They want us to come see what they really need from us is conversion. Mm. Mm. That's, man. Good heavens. <laughs> You're I'm sorry. A I lot mean, to chew on. Yeah. So... Tell me you're in the order of preachers without telling me you're in the order of preachers. Um, that is now when you grab the microphone back from somebody <laughs> twice, I guess. That is amazing and beautiful yeah. and deeply compelling. Um, I don't have any questions uh, on uh, Slido. Anybody questions out here? Silas? Mm. Well, right. I mean, the biggest growing faith community in the United States are evangelical non-denominational communities. But the problem with that is that if you really look at, you, you kind of do a sub-tab on this and look at data, which we do through, one of the ways theology is done today is by uh, intersecting with social scientists and social theory, is that if you look at the sub-tabs, the average membership in, a, in what we would call a megachurch is five to seven years. In other words, most people pass through a mega church and either pass through on the way out of the church or on the way in. So it's the point of entry for a lot of people who are, but a lot of times if they're looking for some level of deeper uh, spiritual growth, uh, issues of, of beyond immediacy of meeting probably a challenge in my life that I, I uh uh, who's there adapting with me? They need a community that's more tight-knit and therefore and more substantial. A lot of times they're moving. So megachurches, I never didn't, like uh, Catholics tend to make fun of megachurches and be angry at them about and stuff. I'm not. They're, they're an entry point, but they're an entry point, right? They're not necessarily, they don't uh, try to be uh, substantive. I mean, the, the megachurch, three megachurch uh, preachers I had worked with had all had MBAs from Harvard, but they didn't have any theology. I mean, we've got two guys in our program. One was the largest preacher in his denomination. He, he had planted 93 churches. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, he, he was part of 93 church plantings around the world. Major, major remarkable person. Never had studied theology in his life. You know, and so the problem with some of the mega churches has not a problem. It's that they do one thing, right? They reach. What's the next step? I mean, sanctification is a process of growing yeah. and deepening in yeah. my relationship with yeah. the Lord, but also converting my life so that I'm an imitatio Christi. I I'm another Christ. And so, therefore, Ooh. that's a harder thing. And so that's where I would say the communities that seem to be growing within the cultural West, also are non-denominational, by the way, Move, and they're movements that tend to be younger Christians. They do hold for Christianity, but they eschew or, or pro find doctrinal discuss discussions boring, but they're very interested in the language of, of spirituality. So, for instance, we've had new monasticism conferences and like you had, somebody had mentioned Chad Claiborne, you know, so you have oh, a lot Shane of these. Claiborne. Yeah, Shane yeah, yeah, Claiborne. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He had been at Oblate a few years ago. We yep. had a big conversation with him about that. One of the things that's happening is a lot of people find the need for community, and it's not going to be met at their um, the latest, what's the new craze that we all hit the ball still over a net? Pickleball. Pickleball. <laughs> so your local, I, hey, I'm all in favor, but brew pubs. Brew pubs are brew not. Pubs, brew yeah. pubs are only a temper. Again, are an entry point or an yeah. exit point, right? Yeah. There, and so for us, the question of where will people find authentic Christian communities? It could be. It could be in traditional churches. It could also be in kind of what we're calling what they're calling transnominational churches or multiple church belongings. In other words, 
In Mexican-American culture, you see it all the time here, where they go to church. Like I say mass over at a place called St. Alphonsus on Sunday. Everybody who's been there knows what the gospel is for Sunday because they were at Wednesday night uh, <laughs> preach. They were at the Wednesday night Bible study at the local Bible church. Mm-hmm. And therefore, okay. they're going to come see what I have to say about it. And so, you know, like, I love it, right? <laughs> that they actually are reading the Bible, but they, the Catholic church isn't offering them that. Mm-hmm. So they have uh, okay. to have multiple belongings to meet. And who's, who's going to help them through and, uh, the, the changes and issues of life? They need that local community, but they still feel some desire to be part of, an, of a larger liturgical and faith tradition. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why, that's why we started. I mean, the person, the, the uh, largest selling uh, Christian writer in English is named Ron Rollheiser. And he's lived in the, here in San Antonio, Texas for 15 years. And um, for instance, he got a, like he will hate me telling you this, but he got a million dollar deal on his next book. He's a rock star of writing and preaching. Of, uh, t- but most of his audience are not, wouldn't, would be shocked and surprised to find out he's not only a Roman Catholic priest, but that he's a theologian and that he runs a school. Like, you know, that he actually has a day job, right? Because most of these people that do this, that's all they do. You know, they get charged. So what Ron's vision about creating a, a, a PhD in spirituality is he thinks the common language that appeals past denominational boundaries is that I do feel myself being called to something more, right? I feel called to, a tra- to transcend mere consumerism and get beyond the boundaries that mere envy can convey mm-hmm. and that I want something deeper and more in my life. But when I look at most Christian churches, I see a religion, first of all, that's largely about committees, and organizational structures, which I already have because I'm a parent, right? <laughs> and therefore, I'm already taking my kids to soccer and all this stuff. And so if you're going to ask me to come in and for me to organize all this stuff, at least at first, again, that's why the low, what we call low bar, low entry point, is so valuable because it precisely doesn't ask anybody but to show up and give their credit card. And that's fine, right, for a lot of people. But what the, they're learning is eventually, though, what they're looking for is what you call, I think, discipleship, mm-hmm. right? They're looking, discipleship is something deeper and is, uh, is something where I commit myself to an ongoing transformation of my own life that I do not know the end of before I begin. We well, also call that marriage, right? Yeah. So yeah. most people's sanctification and discipleship will come through marriage, but they don't, a lot of people don't know that their marriage is their fundamental path to the reign of God, right? Mm-hmm. We don't teach, that isn't a common, that language isn't common anymore, mm-hmm. right? My parents had six kids in six years and took, adopted two nieces and nephews, their cousins, and took in pregnant women from Nebraska. They, they thought that life was a veil of tears and that their parenthood was their salvation because it was the only thing they had, right? Hold on to that. That was the only thing they... They, they didn't have any time for anything else, right? But in, is their sanctification was precisely through their parenthood. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, would most people have know that and have the resources for that? I mean, we tell people that, but how do we resource them for that journey of faith? And how do we resource them when it doesn't work out or is struggles and in the, in the difficulties of Christian marriage, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's that. There's also people looking at the beginning of life before marriage and there's people looking, as we're finding, there's a whole generation of people coming to us to study who just turned 60, right? And everybody, all my friends, I just turned 60 this year, and I'm the only one of my high college roommates who isn't retired. Mm. And usually, and, and also, I'm the only one who's not rich. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, they all, one retired is the president of Eli Lilly, another stepped down as the managing partner of Price Waterhouse. So... Mm. These people have 20 or 30 more years left on this earth. 
and yet there's churches aren't really meant for them either. There's not a there's not a there might be a seniors program, but I bet it mar- largely involves playing lotto. I bet it or does. Bingo or I something. It, I right? bet it. In I bet words, it does. The third exactly life. Right. There's a whole thing called third life now, which is a really yeah. a huge growing thing. Uh, and in the homeless, in the homeless and housing first community that I'm part mm-hmm. of, one of the things they're looking for are long-term com- housing partners, people who will come. So, for instance, we have three, four people who come here every year and help a Catholic worker doctors, a dentist and two doctors, they're a couple from Toronto, but they come down, so they're gonna come to the south anyway for winter, so they wanna partner with something, and so they come partner with us. And they're all retired because in Canada, you have to retire at 60 to make way for the next generation of doctors, right? And they've got this huge retirement and everything, so, but they wanna be of service. So they wanna come and, like I always say, I wanna retire and just be a priest. Like, I really look forward to the day where I just get to help people and I don't have to run anything. Like, I don't want to ever be a pastor, an administrator, or anything again. So you can imagine that there's also a generation of people who feel that way about, they want to come and serve people with the gifts they have. My brother, for instance, who is, I've, unfortunately through me, I take a, he says, I take a vow of poverty and he lives it. Right, uh, he 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 pays for it, but my brother, for instance, is a, started as a, as a wealth management person, and everything. And one of the things he started doing at the Catholic Worker, and not just with the worker, but with people in that neighborhood, is help them understand what savings they have and how they best could utilize the resources they have towards um, enhancing their income and the, and, the, and, the, and the resources that could be available to them if they even knew they existed. So there's a lot of way, you know, a, an accountant and a, and a wealth management person have gifts to offer the poor and have gifts to offer other people who aren't even poor. Just, yeah. I'd need somebody to tell me that. I have no idea what, what 401ks are and, and what Medicare plan to take or any of that yeah. stuff. So in other words, I think third life, I think these are the things, right, that there are these places, they tend to be transitions in life, and that the church has to be there in a substantive way. But I think the language people want from us isn't the language of doctrine, because theories aren't the same thing. They want, and and spirituality is the language of prayer, of virtues, of habits, of practices that help me be the kind of person I want to be. And they need a vision that for that. This is where the charisms. I, they also want somebody to help discern what they're being called to do. Because in America, it's like you're free to be whatever you want. But okay, what? It's overwhelming. Yeah. It's overwhelming, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is what you find in youth ministry. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Okay, y'all, I, I know we no, have other... No, this is so good. Don't I, this is, No, this is awesome. <laughs> I know we have other uh, questions and so forth, but we're going to have to call it a night here. Um, I don't know if you need to just run out the door. No, or if I'm, you can, I'm okay, if somebody has a, a pressing question, please ask him. But we're gonna we're gonna end it right there. Uh, uh, Father John will be here for a little bit. But let's thank him again for being here. Thank you.